This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Bill Batt of Gilderland. He's a man of ideas, big ideas. Right now, he's organizing the annual Council of Georgist Organizations Conference to be held this July in Albany. Bat says we'd have fairer taxes and a richer economy if we followed the ideas of 19th century economist Henry George. George's book, Progress and Poverty, published in 1879, he says, sold more copies than any book ever written except the Bible. And he became world famous along with Thomas Edison and Mark Twain. He was the most famous man in America. I am going to start with a very unusual question that has nothing to do with Henry George. Everybody has their little mottos that come on the bottom of their emails, and yours is from Archilochus, the poet from 650 B.C., and you have this quote, The fox knows many things, the hedgehog one big one. So tell us why that is the phrase for you and what it means. I tend to see things in very global perspectives. Uh, And uh, I find that some people tend to uh, learn bit by bit. I tend to be much more integrative. And in the course of my life, there have been three paradigms that I've adopted that pretty much help me explain the world. And uh, George's thought is the most recent of them. And we'll go into why that is so. But uh, generally, uh, as a, a person with rather a philosophic frame of mind, I look for big pictures rather than uh, uh, small uh, uh, items. Of rather than the fox with all the little details and ways to do things, you have right. the big picture. So you have three paradigms, and the most recent, you say, is George's, but what are the other two, if you could just give us a, well, an the, idea? Well, the first, first thing that ever grabbed me was the cognitive development psychology uh, of people like Jean Piaget, the Swiss psychologist, and later uh, the uh, psychologist Lawrence Kohlberg, who was an educational psychologist at Harvard. And he uh, and Piaget too, held the view that there were stages in cognitive development and people tended to to grow by their gradual integration of one stage succeeding another. Uh, And uh, I found that that was a really good way of looking at things. A second second, uh, paradigm that I found attractive was when I was in my 40s, the uh, 
Integrative Psychology of Ken Wilber, who was often called a New Age psychologist or New Age philosopher. And lots of what he has written, and he's written over 20 books, uh, is also integrates uh, information of every sort and builds on uh, stage theory. Fascinating. I think everyone's familiar with Piaget and those stages, but I, I am not familiar with Ken Wilber. So how and why did you then have as your third paradigm um, the work of Henry George? How did, how did that come to you? Well, I, I'm a political scientist by formal training. And the uh, uh, when I got out of undergraduate school, I was one of the very first people to go into the Peace Corps. And I was sent to northern Thailand and lived in a small village where I didn't speak English for two years and uh, was very involved in the lives of the Thai people in this small village. and their ways of thinking were very limited by their own experience. For example, one time I asked a bunch of kids, where would they like to go in the world if they had a chance to travel? And I expected them to say something like New York or Paris or London. You know where they wanted to go? No. They'd heard about this city 400 miles away to the south, and they just wondered what it was like. I once took one of the young kids to Bangkok with me, and we went to the airport. And then he asked me at one point, he said, what are those round things underneath the wings of the airplane? He didn't understand that those were the engines. Uh, and uh, the exposure of people in a small village in northern Thailand was very limited. And that led also to their cognitive limitations. But of course, those people who, who uh, were more sophisticated were the ones that had exposure to cities and literature and history. So how did this lead you to Henry George? I'm missing the link. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't make that clear. <laughs> uh, being a political scientist, I look again for paradigms that are integrative. And after being a university teacher at SUNY Binghamton and elsewhere until 1982, I was invited to be part of a special commission that the Speaker of the Assembly set up. And the commission was to look at New York, at, at tax policy in New York State from top to bottom uh, without getting involved in bills. And there were six of us, two economists, two political scientists, two, two uh, lawyers, myself a political scientist and an accountant. And that experience of 10 years looking at tax policy 
led me to very different notions of what was a good tax and what was a bad tax. And it led me to uh, the thought of Henry George, who was really abandoned and, uh, until his resurrection in recent days. He was really linked to 19th century economics. And his thought uh, integrated lots of what otherwise were disparate pieces of information. And most tax policy is rather fragmented. Henry George encompassed ideas that were very much of a frame, easy to understand. And in fact, they comported with all of the principles of sound tax theory. And if we followed these ideas, they would, I believe, uh, lead to a much more efficient, productive, and economically just system of taxation. Well, I know from quickly reviewing some of your voluminous writing that you uh, reject the three-legged stool idea that, you know, there are three kinds of taxes, income tax, sales tax, property tax. And what what does the Georgist philosophy or system replace that with? If you could just explain it in layman's terms. Well, uh, Henry George's ideas really uh, are building on all of classical economics before the advent of the 20th century. If we look at the ideas of, of uh, Adam Smith, through Thomas Malthus, through David Ricardo, through John Stuart Mill. Henry George was the culmination of all of those ideas. And his and all classical economics was built on the idea that uh, there were three factors of production, uh, what he called land, which really were elements of nature, uh, labor, which are naturally self-explanatory, people's work, and capital, that is things made by human beings. And if we really wanted to understand economics, we should leave aside taxation of uh, labor and capital and just focus more fundamentally on the ideas that came from classical economics. And it was only in the beginning of the 20th century that economics and tax policy took a very radical turn and was then thereafter based on two-factor theory, labor and capital. Land was dismissed or integrated as part of capital. And the ideas that we should tax based on uh, labor and capital or tax people's things is something which uh, I don't follow. And most people who subscribe to classical economics don't follow. So I know you're on several boards that are um, working with Georgist 
theory. And I just wonder if you could kind of give us a thumbnail of those and how how this could possibly be implemented, this shift towards how we tax. Um, you mentioned this commission that you served on, which I think you said was just dissolved by Sheldon Silver and it's it's work did its work ever come to any sort of fruition? No, the papers that we wrote went up to the speaker's office and people there said, oh, those are very interesting. But we could never do that politically. And they were dismissed out of hand. Now, well, well, so if you could just kind of summarize what what that would look like, what maybe some of those ideas and those papers that were dismissed out of hand what if it were politically possible, what would that tax system look like? I'm just trying to get between no, the I mean, theory and then the reality. We, we never learned. Okay. Uh, they, they, they told us the papers were interesting. But beyond that, uh, we never really learned, never got much feedback. So that was the end. As a matter of fact, that's when when Sheldon Silver became speaker. He uh, canned, he dismissed the whole commission. And I think with good reason, because uh, we were uh, very well funded. But the fact is, our work wasn't yielding any results. And it was a waste of taxpayers' money, in a sense. So... These boards that you're on, the Robert, and maybe I'm saying this. <laughs> the Robert Schultenbach Foundation. Schultenbach, okay. Robert Schultenbach Foundation. Yeah. Um, Schultenbach was a printer, and he was very committed to the Georgist ideas. When he died, he left his fortune to advocate the ideas of Henry George. Henry George, as I said, his ideas were the culmination of classical economics. And the book he wrote, Progress in Poverty, in 1879, uh, sold more copies than any book ever written except the Bible. And he became world famous, uh, along with Thomas Edison and Mark Twain. He was the most famous man in America. He traveled the world. He uh, ran for mayor of New York City twice. The first time he um, against Roosevelt, right? Against Theodore Roosevelt, right? I beat Teddy Roosevelt. And the second time he died four days before the election. But um, anyway, he ran more to promote his ideas than he did with to be mayor. But uh, the the ideas were uh, largely dismissed by the founders of the American Economics Association in the late 19th century, who who were mainly influenced by two powerful forces in the American economy at the time, the railroads and the banks. And they were very threatened by Georgist ideas. The three factors of production in classical economics are land, labor, and capital. His... uh, Uh, In 20th century economics, as I said, uh, it's based on labor and capital. Land is integrated into capital. And all of the economics that is taught in universities in the 20th century is based on 
these ideas, that is the the neoclassical economics, so-called. But now, with the advent of computer power and available data, there are many of us that are saying, not so fast. There's something very special about land that can't be uh, folded into capital goods. And uh, so those of us who believe this, that we need to go back to classical 19th century economics, they're, uh, uh, we're, we're the Georgists. And um, I know I'm not following closely to some of the questions you're asking. I'm getting... Uh, no, that's great because you're, um, you're explaining a lot of various things that go into this. And my questions were aimed towards here you have this economic theory and you're on several boards. Another one is the International Union for Land Value Taxation. You're on several boards that my guess is, and I'm not sure, is, is trying to make this theory into a reality. And I'm just wondering how that might happen or what the role of some, you know, these boards are. The, um, the, the International Union is based in London. It was also founded in 1927, at the time when the Georgist ideas were very well known. And so also with the Schalkenbach Foundation in the in 1920s. And now the, the Georgists believe that we should just tax elements of nature, that uh, all of these uh, land, as Henry George argued, uh, were the free gifts of of God or or nature, and whereas in the case of labor and capital, um, they're creations of of our hands and minds. So if we just tax those elements that were given to us and not our own creation we would have a much more efficient economy. And um, to, whereas Henry George only understood land as surface of the earth, but today there are many other elements of nature that we understand, which Henry George himself, since he died in 1897, never understood. For example, uh, radio frequencies. That's something that Henry George never knew about. Satellite orbits, um, any, any, something, DNA. Uh, there are any number of elements of nature which have a market value and could be taxed since they were not our, the creation of, of human beings. And it would lead to a much more efficient economy than the way we tax now. The tax structure now, going back to the idea of the three-legged stool that I earlier mentioned, or we mentioned, uh, leads to a certain uh, inefficiency of the economy. Um, the What, what uh, economists call excess burden or deadweight loss, which is usually uh, reduces the productivity of our society by between 10 and 20%. And if we had a more efficient 
uh, tax structure, we would be much wealthier as a society. To take the idea of land, for example, taxing people's labor, people work less. Taxing capital, people make less. Taxing sales, people buy less. Taxing savings, people save less. Taxing land, same amount of land. Doesn't reduce the amount of land by taxing it. And therefore, the economy becomes much more richer by its using a tax of this order. Well, <laughs> how I guess the question is still, how would we get there? How would that work? I know one of the essays or papers um, that I read that I just loved, you did How Our Towns Got That Way. And um, you write about the over-reliance on the car and all the inefficiencies that that causes. And you um, write about suburban sprawl, which... The Altamont Enterprise is very familiar with. And um, you bring up that wonderful book, Bowling Alone, and this idea that communal relationships with the use of the car and the sprawl have disintegrated. It's kind of the opposite of that Thai village <laughs> that you, well, you know, very... were in the Peace Corps with, where, you know, everyone, they may not have known the larger world, they may not have thought of New York City as a place to visit, but my guess is they had a very tight community, a, a culture that, um, you know, uh, fostered, intersection with one another. Is that right? Yeah, very much so. Um, it's not hard to uh, make the transition from our existing tax structure to how Georgia's would organize it. Uh, right now, for example, if you own a home, the property tax is based on the value of the house and the value of the land underneath the house. Now, there are many places in the world, 20 cities, in fact, in Pennsylvania, and many places in other countries where you gradually downtax the rate on the house and you uptax the rate on the land and get the same amount of revenue. And therefore, you're just taxing the land. And uh, for example, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, is gradually phasing out the tax on the building and only taxes land value. Same with Allentown. And there's some 20 cities in Pennsylvania. There's several cities in Canada which once taxed exclusively the land, they got away from it due to bad assessments, and now they're coming back to it. The largest state in Germany Baden-Württemberg tax is now beginning to tax just the land value. In Australia, there are many cities that are just taxing the land and not taxing buildings that sit on the land. Here's well, the part that I have trouble grasping. Um, you have in one of your papers this idea, which is very graspable, that in, I think it was Times Square, Disney uh, bought a parcel of land, and that was very, very valuable, the land itself, and you compare it to 
huge tracts of land elsewhere in New York, um, you know, that that because of its location, because of where it was, that's very valuable. I can understand that. But let's say in our area, um, Crossgates Mall, that's on a piece of land that wasn't particularly valuable. It was part pine bush. It was part... Um, it was it had a, a riding stable there. I mean, the land itself isn't what made that parcel the largest driver of tax money for Albany County. It was that the Pyramid Company built a mall there. So I, I, what I have trouble with is understanding how taxing just the land itself would be a fair way of doing things when what's built on the land is what gives it, in our current economic system, its value. Well, if we understand land, actually, the better way, perhaps, is to understand it as the location. Uh, We're really taxing the location. And the location has value is because that's where the people are. That's where the market exchanges take place. And uh, any time there's a market that yields the what economists call economic rent, and that land rent, so-called, is really the value that uh, could be captured rather than left for people to enjoy themselves. For example, uh, if you uh, own a house over the course of the uh, 30 or 40 years that you have a mortgage, the house depreciates in value. But it's the land that typically increases in value. So by the time you Uh, say, decide to cash out and sell the house, it's really the land that has the, the, the value more than the building. Same with Crossgates. The Crossgates Mall is a hugely valuable building, but what happened is the circulation of activity uh, at that location has made the land very, very valuable. I'll give a further example uh, is I did a study of uh, Interstate 87 going from Western Avenue up to the um, uh, to the Mohawk River. Now, we could have because of the development of that highway, the land value within two miles on either side of that highway increased enormously. Before that, it was just farmland, but the accessibility made possible by the highway made that land hugely valuable. And in fact, that's the reason why the Crossgates Mall settled and it was built where it was, because it allowed the people to get there. It allowed market activity right in that area. And all of that value was not made by individuals. It was made by the society because since society created that value, arguably 
society should recover that value and use it to support public goods and services in lieu of taxing people's labor and goods, which arguably we own ourselves. You're taxing that which you didn't create. You're taxing that which was made by the community. Yes, I can see that's one of the essential principles of Georgism. And also one of the things that I love about the theory that you mentioned in several of your papers is especially now that we have such a growing divide between the wealthy and the poor, that this system would help close that gap, which um, would certainly be an admirable goal. Yeah, most really, really, really wealthy people don't earn the money by their labor. They collect what, again, economists call economic rent. Um, uh, The classical economists call this the unearned income or lazy income. They because you can sit back and eat cherries and uh, the income comes to you. Um, As John Stuart Mill put it, landlords earn money in their sleep. They don't earn it. They grab title to a piece of land and the value flows to them. So our time has just gone so fast. I wanted to talk a little about your organizing right now a conference, which I think you said will have people from around the world coming. Can you just tell us a little about when and where and what that conference is? Uh, The Council of Georgist Organizations meets every year, and these are all probably 20 or 30 different people who subscribe to the ideas of Henry George, some big, some small. And uh, this year, we're going to be meeting in Albany this coming summer in July, and um, we'll have uh, our thoughts exchanged, and we'll uh, probably have papers uh, recorded or or, uh, published online, and they will talk about taxing any kind of market value which is not made by human beings, which is part of nature again. Uh, Again, uh, I'm putting it together now, but uh, one of the possible papers might be how we would tax the radio frequencies, because the radio frequencies, even though Henry George never understood them, The radio frequencies are owned by the community. The market value stems from the fact that everybody listens to the radio. Uh, Another example would be airport landing slots. The time slots that airport airlines can can, uh, land and take off every three minutes have value because of their use. Uh, Before airplanes, there were no values to those time slots. Uh, 
when London had to decide whether to build a fifth airport or use its existing four airports more efficiently, one of the options was to auction off the rental value of those time slots for, for landing and takeoff. And they decided if they did that, it would not make it necessary to have a fifth airport. As it turned out, in the, the first decade of the 20th century, the economy took a dive. So the traffic at the airports was less, and that obviated the need to make the to decide the question. But it's still really important to consider whether we should be taxing the landing slots and takeoff spots for airlines because then the airports would be used much more efficiently. There's many elements of nature that could be taxed in lieu of taxing our own hands and minds. Yes, I know one of your papers, you go back to the Native Americans that had this idea of no ownership of the land and, you know, make links to that. There are just so many ideas floating around in my head at this point. I have no idea how to wrap this up. Perhaps you could do that for us. Any closing thoughts for our listeners? Um, well, um, the conference will be available this coming summer at the hotel across the street from the Albany Medical Center in mid-July. And the website that will slowly take shape as we plan the conference is cgocouncil.org. Council of Georgia's organization, cgocouncil.org. And uh, even though it'll be largely people who are committed to these ideas, everyone is welcome. And uh, it could be a very interesting conference of ideas that uh, are new to people for the first time in a century. 